Hello and welcome to RoyCast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan and I'm your solo host for this bonus episode where we look at a work from what we think of as the Succession bibliography, the loose grouping of artworks that may have directly or indirectly contributed inspiration to our favorite TV show. And our topic today is going to be the 1997 film The Game, starring Michael Douglas, Deborah Carr Unger, and Sean Penn, directed by David Fincher. And joining me for this discussion is the author of the recent book, David Fincher Mind Games, close friend of the show, critic Adam Naiman. Hey, Adam. How you doing? Recently, the book was uh, was spotted. A friend texted me today in the same window as a Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen's book companion to their podcast, Renegades. So I think there were more copies of my book in the store window, which either means they're stocking it higher or that Obama's selling more copies of his book. Now, this is a separate uh, Springsteen-themed Obama book because his memoir is called Promised Land. Is this a different book that also has a Springsteen title? This, this looks, and this is based on my memory of a photo I looked at about two hours ago. It looks like it's like them hanging out in the studio I imagine there's probably Obama's like moving uh, mixing board knobs, like drone strike buttons, as they uh, as they go through Bruce's uh, dis- discography. Yeah, you can't ask Obama who his guys are. That's classified. No, I mean he probably has been asked who his guys. Did, did Obama ever do Marin? Was that too big a get for Mark Marin? No, he actually did. Yeah, that was kind of like the you know. I mean, he he was already established at that point, but the Obama right. episode was like you know he came to the garage and everything. I think you know Leo didn't come to the garage. No, you know. I mean, at the risk of discourse of of, 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 of uh, digressing too much, there's probably not a bigger podcast get at this point, right? Than 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 <laughs> ex president Barack Obama. Obama. Yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, no, happy to happy to be here on this solo episode. I feel like we're not going to be reined in by your typically uh, on point co-host whose presence is is missed. Yeah, exactly. There's uh, there's no one to uh, rein in the digressions and such here. So we're gonna we're gonna try to stick to the game. And again, this is this is sort of an experiment at this point. I don't know exactly when we're putting this episode out. Um, but, you know, it is sort of an experiment because, you know, at the end of our season, we wanted to sort of keep talking to our friends, keep talking to smart people, you know, and not, you know, exhaust the well of succession discourse because as much as we like the show, I'm very conscious that it is an exhaustible uh, well that we could pull from. And so, you know, digging into other stuff, sort of tangential stuff that we find interesting that would be interesting to talk about um, seemed like a possible extension. And so this is a, a foray into, you know, trying to do that. No, and the idea of a bibliography for a television show is, on the surface, ridiculous. But then you have uh, the TV shows that actually might seem to warrant uh, those annotations or, or, or support them. So when you presented this proposition to me, I thought uh, this, actually makes, this actually makes a heap of sense to talk about the game in conversation. Plus, I also just like... Uh, also just like flogging this book, especially in conversation with uh, one of the people who was very helpful and instrumental in, in, in writing it. Brennan's a very good writer, but also, you know, he would kind of look at the book in parts where I was writing and he'd be like, that's not a thing. And I'd be like, okay. And, you know, <laughs> some of the more, some of the chancier uh, exegesis of Fincher's movies would sort of just be deleted, like, you know, just like that. Well, I recall when we talked about this film in particular, about the game, 
that when you when you sent me this chapter when you wrote it i think my initial reaction was pretty much like no notes like i thought you pretty much nailed this uh on the on the on the first pass more or less um so you know because i i think it's a movie that both of us have somewhat mixed feelings about um you know i found myself rewatching it for this you know enjoying certain elements of it but there's also uh, parts of it where i do zone out a bit and you know i think the way that the movie ends is really fascinating and fun to kind of talk about and dig into even as um i pretty much don't believe that it's successful um the way this movie winds up no, and we should, I mean, I, I quoted this in the book, but for listeners who either don't have the book at hand nor encyclopedic recall of what David Fincher thinks of this movie, he's very ambivalent about it. Right? Yeah. He, he has said, in his opinion, that the script did not stick the landing. And that's a very telling comment because, uh, in the first place, the script was hugely revised. He basically called in Andrew Kevin Walker, his seven writer, Mm-hmm. very much flush with the success and i think uh you know the kind of rolodex option seven brought andrew kevin walker he kind of came in to do a rewrite of a script that had been chopped around by a couple of young writers you know for a while and uh everything with that script was tailored to what fincher wanted and even so uh he still didn't think that he 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 he, he nailed it and uh, he's actually gone so far as to say that that failure to stick the landing makes him kind of regret the movie to an extent. And yet I'd agree with you that the ending of the film is quite fascinating. I had a great time trying to write about it and work through not the boring stuff like the narrative inconsistencies, but, you know, some of the pretty compelling contradictions in that ending in terms of does it frame the movie as a, as a, as a redemption tale? Does it frame the movie in some ways as, you know, real just kind of slap on the wrist for someone who may be mm-hmm. given what he, given what he represents yeah. in this kind of late nineties corporate context, you know, maybe should be more punished. And how does it pay off that running motif of immersive, uh, you know, immersion in kind of a B movie reality? So I think it's a, I think it's a very uh, deconstructible, uh, movie one that we should also say in a strange way has one of the real like jet trails of prestige of all the fincher's movies the first one put in criterion yeah 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 first one put in criterion it's the one preferred by a certain class of higher end uh critics some of the best american film critics uh, nick nick pinkerton is, is on the record is really you know thinking this is fincher's best movie there's a, yeah. a really lavish arrow UK DVD that has like a 200 page booklet including a long essay by by Bilga Abiri um, and uh, you know, writers like Gina Telleroli think that it, it, it's one of Fincher's best which is an interesting thing to, to wrestle with because I don't but yeah. these, are, these are compelling arguments yeah I mean yeah I wanted to touch on that a little bit and I think for the purposes of this episode a lot of the stuff that's most interesting to me although we're going to talk about Fincher a lot obviously because he wrote this whole book from this sort of auteurist lens looking at his career and everything a lot of the stuff that's interesting to me about this movie is not necessarily the stuff pertaining to the you know the directorial signature such as it is because this is the one of the ones I think where that signature is a little bit more effaced or it's not it's not quite as strong as it is uh, elsewhere. Um, but the idea that this movie has been is is the one that has been I think like most reclaimed is kind of interesting to me because when you have somebody like Fincher who 
successfully establishes himself as, you know, not just somebody who can get work, but who's kind of like a brand name where, you know, movies that he makes and, you know, coverage of stuff that he's made is going to get attention. Um, you know, pe there's a natural incentive for people to go back and try to find, okay, what's the stuff that we can, I don't know, mine for more content? What can we, what can we milk a little bit more um, for discourse or for analysis to, or to say, hey, we should take a second look at this. And the game seems to be the one that, you know, maybe didn't get an, as much attention on first pass and maybe, you know, has risen a bit more in people's esteem because if you go further back you know you have his feature his uh, debut alien 3 which i think a lot of is still a pretty off-putting movie um although it's got its fascinating elements and seven i think has its place in the canon in the culture it's, it's pretty well ensconced but the game for the game i guess seemed ripe i think to be boosted a bit yeah well not to go stampeding past the succession of it all because this as you say you know we're if Fincher the auteur is discussed here, it's going to be in the context or in the flow of this other this other stuff that we want to frame it. But it, I think that that effacing self-effaced quality is why for some people they like it because mm. uh, it it's not Fincher the man of ideas such as he is, and I think there's some people who find that version of of Fincher off-putting. It's made before in some ways his power and control in Hollywood you know, gets consolidated with something like Fight Club where you really get a sense of the sensibility and the personality and there's a certain obnoxiousness, which you can say is productive or which you can say is just, you know, like completely falls flat. But that, that chipped shoulder really kind of comes into play more. I also think people to some extent are nostalgic for the kind of A-list, B-plus Hollywood movie of the 90s, you know, that yes. kind of mid upper upper middle weight self-contained uh non-ip based entertainment which we're now fetishizing in, in a nostalgic way sometimes beyond the actual qualities of these movies i mean this is why i have a group of friends i've been watching movies with you know on thursday nights and when the game actually finally came up within this group i skipped the screening because i'd seen it a million times we watched right. the movies collectively <laughs> but i didn't i didn't skip it out of dislike i had something better to do but the discourse the next day around it when we were texting each other was like, it's like kind of too good. It's like the movie that we're chasing every Thursday yeah, and yet yeah, it's yeah. still only the game, you know, right. like, you know, we're, you know, we're not watching the passion of Anna every week or, 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 or something. I mean, we're watching crap. And then the game is like excellent crap. Yeah. And I think, and I think because we're in a moment where there is not even good crap and there's just kind of dismal crap, uh, that 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 period of movie going to me, I'm very I, I miss based on my age. So that's yeah. part of it. The critics of our of our I'm older than you, but critics of a certain generation I think are looking back, uh, looking back fondly on that kind of upper mid budget genre programmer that uh, comes and goes in a good way. Yeah, in a sense, the reclamation of the game and yeah, that glossy prestige criterion arrow treatment that we've been discussing is only really possible in a world where standards have declined so much that we are really <laughs> nostalgic for like, yeah, the 90s mid-budget movie. Yeah, but there's also something to be said, and even on the original Criterion essay before maybe, I would say, because that came out, the, the Criterion of the game came out, I think, before the truly hyperbolic praise of Fincher in kind of online circles began, like the end result of which I guess in my book, mm -hmm. one, or one of the end results. But, you know, when, when, when David, I think it's David Starrett who wrote the essay in the, yep. in the, in the book, Starrett. Yep. I mean, 
even his thesis, which is older by standards now of of Fincher appreciation, but you know was was still kind of a late breaking read on the movie, which is that it's a metaphor or an allegory for a filmmaking process about which Fincher is both deeply nostalgic because it's not just any movie Douglas finds himself in; it's a seventies thriller. You know, even one set on the streets of San Francisco where Douglas himself prowled in that decade as a television star. Right. You know, that idea that that idea that CRS might represent to some extent a movie studio and that uh, the movie is a comment on its own operations. That's not totally absent in the film's initial reception, but people weren't all over that the way they'd be all over it now. I mean, most of the original reviews of the game in newspapers and stuff have to do with whether or not the movie obliges you to suspend your disbelief. You know, that kind of plot summary review, which is like, you probably wouldn't believe that a company could uh, make this fake stuff all seem pretty real, but that's the fun of the movie. You don't have a lot of people digging into it really interpretively the way that you do now, as criticism has you know, multiplied and, and, and subdivided in some ways is much better now than it's ever been. There's just too much of it, but at least there's more kind of good stuff. And you, you have a lot of people who are just looking at the game for the first time now automatically like, oh yeah, no, this is an allegory about filmmaking. And this is clearly what, what Fincher's trying to say, which is a read that I go with in my book and which I think holds. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I don't think this movie, there's a lot of ways in which parts of this movie that I don't think work really on most levels except for that metaphorical level which is a big yep. reason that it winds up feeling a little bit hollow to me and again i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because we're gonna I, I want to dig into the the ending a bit later um so i thought we might just start by talking about you know the the bit of citation that we've already referenced on this podcast before which is the opening sequence which the, with this home video footage that uh, purports to show the michael douglas character nicholas van orton as a child um and which was very obviously as, as you pointed out in one of our previous episodes, the lift for the succession opening title sequence. And, and I, when rewatching this, I was really struck how, you know, because the succession title sequence is now so iconic for, you know, deservedly so for the great Patel score. And I think these images are, are that they, uh, that they use for those credits with like the, the, the kids that they cast and this sort of just like suggestion of this era and this prestige and this environment and this childhood. It's very evocative, but at the same time, uh, I don't think it betters the original because watching the, the sequence in the game, you know, I was struck by how much, because the succession credits are a little bit generic, like some of that stuff is actually like stock footage, like there's that aerial shot of the manor that you can actually also see in Too Many Cooks. Um, but yeah. but uh, the but the stuff in um, in the game, you know, as far as I know, most of that stuff is original, and I know that the, you know, they they talk a little bit on the commentaries about how they, they, they cast around for the kid, and, uh, and for the dad, who's played by uh, Charles Martinet, who's the voice of Mario and Luigi, in a really great, uh, fun bit of trivia. And he also uh, has, I think, a, an obvious resemblance to the adult Michael Douglas. Um, but there's all that stuff in there, you know, that's, that has in common with the succession credits, like these images of just, like, the patriarchal figure, like, walking away, like, touches being dropped, hands and gestures, and, like, the yeah. sense of, like, the dad is kind of, like, an impression, and somebody who's, like, not quite real, and, like, uh, most of that opening sequence, the footage and stuff seems to be, like, this really lavish, sort of, like, weird, hokey birthday party that the kid's having, um, and the father's only just kind of, like, glancingly present and all this stuff. Well, well part of me, if, if, you know, 
you get the chance, if you ever ask the chance to ask a filmmaker a maybe stupid question. I just wanted to ask Fincher if somewhere in the visual makeup of that sequence there's not a bit of Richard Donner's The Omen, which has mm. this really shocking set piece where the heir to, uh, the, the, the Antichrist-to-be, the son of the American uh, ambassador to, to Britain, played by Gregory Peck, at a lavish backyard birthday party at an old English manor where the family's living, with like clowns and a merry-go-round and all kind of coded ominously by Donner and like blacks and grays. The family's uh, nanny climbs to the roof and has this great 70s, you know, line. She goes, it's all for you, Damien. And she right. jumps off the roof and, and, and kills herself. It's like, uh, you know, the omen is structured like a James Bond movie, but instead of a stunt sequence every 10 minutes, there's like this horrible murder. And it's yeah. caused by, you know, like these psychic mind manipulating dogs. Anyway, the, the omen's really great. But I remember when, but I remember even when I watched the game as a teenager, I thought of the opening of the omen also because the payoff to that flashback into that psychic space is the father falling, right? Right. Which in the trailers, coming on the heels of seven, is cut in the trailers as a very nightmarish, almost kind of horror movie image. And that's the part that feels kind of Fincher, Fincher and Andrew Kevin Walker. I mean, the, the flashbacks never explode into full-on horror territory, but they're meant to be dreamlike, recalled, uh, not surreal exactly, but there's like an absence in them. And it's not just the absence of the father walking away. There's like this very, you know, morbid tone that then pays off when we see that these are not just memories of a a birthday party and of distance from this father but i mean memories of the condition of the father's suicide mm-hmm. and that leap from the top of the man of the of the manor which is filmed so obliquely and strangely and at such a kind of scary distance if you remember the shot that then informs the whole motif of falling that runs throughout the game and i think that the first time i watched succession more than just recognizing maybe that they're pulling from you know the, the visual aesthetic, that sort of grainy, uh, you know, grainy kind of, you know, aged look. Uh, it also struck me that Nicholas Bertel's music uh, had that same swirling, vertiginous, circular quality that Howard Shore's score has for the game. I mean, Howard Shore's score for the game is not a terribly famous film score, even by Howard Shore's standards. Right. But he was someone I interviewed for the book. There wasn't room for his interview in the book, which is a real shame because it's Howard Shore. It was just a page count thing. A great mm-hmm. composer. But he talked about how he wanted the music in that film to constantly give an impression of weightlessness and and falling. And that's where you get that kind of circular, dropping, spiral-like instrumentation that you have in the score for the game, which completely suits that movie's themes and payoff right and we'll we'll get to the ending eventually but the ending is douglas's character mimicking his father's plunge except instead of a suicidal plunge it's a rebirth right but the the music in succession married to those images cinches the link in a way that's just beyond (laughs) beyond ironclad because the brittel melody which is infinitely more famous than, than shores now is that same idea it's like a leaf falling to the ground or a snowflake swirling in the wind or, God forbid, the, the feather in Forrest Gump, right? It's a melody that's suspended and it just keeps rotating. It never resolves. 
Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I was really struck by the shore music rewatching this because there's a there's a passage like in, towards the middle where um where uh, I think it's right before he uh, in, bumps into the private investigator or supposed private investigator played by Mark Boone Jr. Um, where you know it's really striking the the score is essentially these two elements of these like very heavy kind of ominous strings. And this is like your basic thriller score, right? It's like, it's the jaw score basically, right? It's the like yeah. brood, it's the brooding strings. But then over top of that, you have that sort of like tinkling spiraling piano, which is like this idea of like, you know, the reverie or improv improvisation on a theme or falling, as you say, you know, which is all the stuff, which is like the whole idea of this movie, just sort of like playing atop the, like dancing atop rooftops, dancing across, across these tropes. Um, this, that the script deals with for sure and i think that 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 slightly fluttery or tinkly quality is you know in this movie's vocabulary i guess in this case not visual vocabulary but it's the vocabulary of its soundscape it's that kind of fluttering pathos that it's trying to deal in right yeah i mean you know seven is a movie that very successfully haunts uh, the morgan freeman character and it, there's a couple of concrete examples he gives this detective of things that make him sad, you know, like he saw a guy stabbed on the street and that sucks, or he had a, a he was going to have a baby and didn't have it. But in Seven, it's kind of a more ambient alienation where it's like, you know, mm. it's a shitty job to work in that city and he'd like to get out. There's pathos in that movie, but it's, it's I think, really subordinate to the kind of you know, cop archetype in the plot. But I mean, the, what makes the game work or what why it doesn't work or what is just proposed to work about the game is this Michael Douglas character haunted by the absent father, haunted by the fear that he is going to follow in his father's footsteps. His man, his father was the proverbial man with everything and he didn't want it. You know, mm -hmm. he kind of sent, sent it back. Yeah. And so... You know, that film, and a lot of it is the shorthand of casting Michael Douglas and the kind of performance he gives, uh, even even beyond the shorthand of the kind of characters he plays, just the idea of Michael Douglas as a famous son with a certain legacy yeah. around him, even a Hollywood legacy. Um, but that fluttering in the score, that up top that you're talking about, you know, that's that's the 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 psych the psychic haunting that the movie means to play out and then all the other stuff is kind of you know just the the heavy yeah. machinery of suspense that the yeah. movie is going to use as its as its vehicle and this pathos that we're talking about for this character i think when the movie is in touch with it because i think there are passages where the movie kind of loses touch with it a bit um it doesn't keep this uh this character is kind of like emotional and sort of like psychic turbulence foregrounded i think enough of the time um there's passages where there's just you know it's it's just riffing on b-movie tropes and you kind of forget why you're there but when it's there as it is from the very beginning this opening sequence i find it really effective because i mean some of the stuff we see in this home video footage we're, we're almost done discussing the sequence but um you know we see the house which i think is like the house that nichols is still living in right the idea that he's still living in the same house where his father killed himself um and but you also see this stuff like again this birthday party that he's having is like very gaudy and weird it's like it, the taste 
tastes are very outdated. Like there, he has these like old timey clowns and stuff performing, um, and you know, there's these images of him in a suit, and it's this impression that you get because you know they, they never quite stitch together. They don't show you what happens after the father's suicide. It just you know, it just the the film just blinks, and you're there with the adult Michael Douglas washing his face and looking into himself in the mirror on the morning of his 48th birthday. But the impression is that this is somebody for whom adulthood has been thrust upon too soon, right? And that cut there is so affecting to me because it's like those decades just pass for him in an instant and he's his father yeah absolutely and depending on how you w- want to look at it you know if it doesn't work for you you kind of sneer and you go you know that's pretty broad psychic shorthand but if you take it as a sequence that belongs you know in the mental landscape of this character and that's coming to him for a particular reason at a particular time on a particular anniversary it's the kind of shorthand that works and it's the kind of shorthand that goes hand-in-hand with casting Douglas, you know. One of the things that Fincher's good at early in his career, I mean, with Weaver in Alien 3, it's because she's literally playing the character within an ongoing narrative. So, of course, you care about Ripley. But, you know, Freeman in Seven and and Douglas in the game, these kind of veteran actors who aren't... They're not movie stars, exactly. They're movie star character actors, and their faces and their personas can do some of the heavy lifting that a screenplay either you know, isn't subtle or clever enough to, 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 to do, or they can make it seem subtler or, or, or cleverer than it is. But, I mean, let's just sort of say about that opening sequence that the underlying tensions and anxieties there about growing up with everything, but feeling like you don't have enough, feeling lonely, feeling like those trappings are somewhat uh, made ugly, you know, I mean, that carries through within the universe of succession. And what I've always found, you guys may have talked about this a million times on the pod, or maybe you haven't talked about it in a focused way at all, but I find the fact that those opening credits in succession never seem to quite belong to the Roy family fascinating, because mm-hmm. they do and they don't. Right. Right. You watch them and you sort of go, well, that lines up as young whoever or young whoever. You're like, you know, is it carelessness that the that the ages and the and the and the fashions and the the things that we see them doing don't seem to match up or is it going for that more generalized evocation of childhood misery or or yeah. teenage dislocation and you know in in that sense you get that the, those same vague unsettling feelings that you 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 get out of the game except in the game it is of course very very specifically a flashback yeah, it's very specifically a flashback, and yeah, again, there's there's times that the movie returns to it, but again, for my, in my opinion, not often enough. But yeah, we're confronted then with the the visage of Michael Douglas, yeah, splashing his face in the morning, which again, it's like I. We've just talked about how the way that cut is very effective, but that's also something that they would like tell you not to do in a screenwriting class or something to like show the character. It's like okay, and he's starting his morning routine. His alarm clock's going off. That's like something they would tell you not to do. Uh, but it works in this movie. It's one of the instances I think of the script actually using cliche in a way that's effective and that's boosted by the direction. Um, but yeah. Mike, but Michael Douglas being here, you know, it's maybe it's worth talking just a little bit about. I think this is a fairly well established trope by now. But the kind of characters that Michael Douglas is sort of famous for playing by the time of the 90s i mean again we've talked about how he is a guy who has a famous dad that he has to live up to the actor and producer kirk douglas and you know michael douglas was also somebody who was like often a producer who often was like a boss in a hollywood context and he didn't necessarily produce the movies where he starred in but it was like you know he kind of carries himself that way he's like a very
very involved star. I don't know about the degree that he was, you know, I don't know if he was ever involved to the degree that, like, his father was on Spartacus, per se, where he's butting heads with Stanley Kubrick. Um, But, you know, it's like on a Michael Douglas set, he's not just the star of the movie, but he is, like, a sort of formidable presence that everybody on the set has to kind of deal with because they know he's going to be very engaged and so it's it's funny on a number of levels that he winds up playing these guys who i think in that criterion uh essay starrett talks about this as like a comeuppance movie as a guy who needs to be humbled a bit right yeah i mean i think that that's douglas's wheelhouse and it's interesting because you you do these thought experiments people love breaking up the history of Hollywood into these very particular epochs to pick a period. They'll be like, I suppose if you were to go from 1996 to 2003 in September, Nicolas Cage is the major American actor of that period. I mean, you can make the calculus add up, right? Yeah. But I mean, there is a certain case to be made for Douglas as one of the faces of non-blockbuster American cinema of the of the late 80s, early 90s, or maybe the face of a blockbuster non-genre cinema or non-science fiction, non-special effects cinema. You know, it's funny, in a movie like Romancing the Stone, he's a knockoff Harrison Ford. And it can only work in a knockoff context, because I think if you put Douglas in a real big 80s special effects genre movie, he's not really credible. Even in a cop movie like Black Rain, he's kind of you know, just there. Uh-huh. But in another context, like gigantic moneymaker water cooler films, he has more of them in a short period of time than anyone. Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, and Falling Down are all movies that drove film cultural discourse in a pre-internet or just barely pre-internet period. And all those films are based around flaws. There's nothing idealist, and, and Wall Street too, right? I mean, it was only one is Oscar for. I mean, those roles are defined by flaws. They're defined by moral flaws. They're defined by ethical flaws. They're defined by shaky competence. And in a lot of those films, he's punished. I mean, in in Wall Street, his punishment is the climax. In Fatal Attraction, in the same year, his punishment is the inciting incident. And then the movie works overtime in a very sweaty and I think awful way to kind of excuse and. And, and, and redeem him. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Basic Instinct is all about uh, a guy with a weird death wish who's got to have it to the point where, you know, he's going to get it. And the end of that movie sort of seems to suggest, you know, his 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 time is coming on the wrong end of the ice pick. Yeah. And, and even though Falling Down is the only one that martyrs him, uh, you know, he, he, he sort of spends that whole movie literally begging, waiting to be to be taken down you know Mm -hmm. so he's not an actor who people like to see transcend he's an actor who people kind of like to see squirm and he's good at it yeah i mean as you outline those movies it's fascinating because i think about this this grouping of movies a lot and you know uh we can also talk about like wall street and how you know, Douglas is one of was one of these figures as Gordon Gecko, who's sort of an avatar for you know fear of like the you know the '90s Wall Street stockbroker, and in many ways, you know, kind of a Trump figure too. Before Trump meant what Trump now means, when he was was just sort of a, a symbol of sort of like crass American success of that period. But another thing that those movies have in common, I think, 
I don't know how much time we want to spend on this, but I think it's fascinating if you look at those, and I would add another one to that grouping, is Disclosure, the adaptation of the, the Michael Crichton novel, um, is that a lot of those those movies would express some pretty reactionary ideas, especially about women oh, in particular, deep, right? D- deeply reactionary, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, you can only quote it so many times, so let's quote it one more time, you know, Kale on Fatal Attraction, she got one of her best one-liners off that movie where she says, you know, the family that kills together stays together, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I think she I think she juxtaposed Fatal Attraction with uh, Joseph Rubens, the stepfather from that same year where, you know, the patriarch yep. is, the patriarch is a fucking, uh, you know, marauding, shape-shifting, uh, you know, shape-shifting sociopath who wants to keep his family together. And in Fatal Attraction, he's a philandering liar who kind of wants to keep his family together. It's a thin line, right? Yeah. You know? Uh, and, in, and in Fatal Attraction, the Glenn Close character, for dramatic convenience, gets turned into, if not the stepfather, she gets turned into Freddy Krueger or Michael Myers or something by the <laughs> right. end because, because the filmmakers not only lack imagination, but because there's such a deep reservoir of, of misogyny in there. And I think that if you're going to compare Fatal Attraction to Basic Instinct to Disclosure, what elevates Basic Instinct as an auteur work is that misogyny is a satirical subject as well as a pure expression within that movie. Because Douglas, the other thing we have to say about him is in all these films, he's presumed to have a certain sexual magnetism, which isn't totally invented. I mean, they wouldn't keep putting him in these movies if there weren't people somewhere who got off on him. But I mean, the joke in Basic Instinct that literally every woman in that film young, old, gay, straight, bisexual, whether it's Sharon Stone or, 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 or a Catherine Trammell's girlfriend or the police psychologist or the old lady, like they all are just like yeah. homicidally fixated on Michael Douglas. So it's a great movie about male sexual paranoia where it's like the narcissism of thinking the whole world wants to fuck you and then the terror of like, also they're going to kill me. Yeah. It's very funny. And I think there's something about the slight unlikelihood of Douglas as that guy, because he's also not young. I mean, he's very good looking, very good looking as a young up and coming kind of movie. You you can see it in Streets of San Francisco and the China Syndrome. He's not unconvincing as someone who Jane Fonda might be interested in, you know. Uh But these are all later middle aged performances, and they're coded in a certain kind of sleaze. Mm hmm. And what's interesting, by the time you get to the game, is, yeah, this is later than any of those films. He's his own kind of shorthand, and you don't need to play him off an electric female co-star anymore. You know, his his romantic couplings in this movie are are, are pretty minor, you know? Uh, yeah. He's, he's purely a figure of isolation, and there is an extent to which what he's playing is he's playing a Michael Douglas lead in a movie. If we're going to go with, if we're going to go with the, the hood popped reading of the game as a kind of meta thriller for better or worse. Yeah. Well, we'll, I think we'll come back to some of the ideas of romance and, you know, Michael Douglas is sort of a romantic figure because that, 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 that's an element of this movie. That's interesting when we get to the Deborah Carr Unger character. Um, But I think, um, yeah, just moving on from that idea about, you know, the Michael Douglas character is expressing something that's in like the zeitgeist of this period. I mean, that's one of the 
angles from which the game is most interesting to me is as kind of a zeitgeisty movie um, because we've already talked about how the movie from this very first sequence sets up this idea of suicide and a death wish suicidal ideation also we should mention being something that is a huge part of the dna of succession and this fear that Nicholas is going to follow in his father's footsteps. And so this is fascinating. So to, to kind of, you know, talk just a little bit about the ending of the movie where his brother Conrad, plays by Sean Penn, says that, you know, he says when he hugs him, he says, I had to do something. You were becoming such an asshole. Uh, that, that is one of the things about that ending that doesn't work for me uh, because it's not plausible to me as the reason why Conrad does this or why they put him through this whole ringer uh, with the CRS game with driving him to the point where he just just firing a gun blindly and jumping off a building like clearly the point of all this is to allow this character is to allow Nicholas to exercise his like latent death wish in a controlled environment right like that's what this is all about and that's part of what the movie's sort of quasi satirical meta point is about like the function of genre movies or whatever. Do, they, do they allow us to express something you know that's latent and the degree to which the game expresses that you know when it gets in touch with that idea i think and it's only i think glancingly in touch with it but the idea that there is a sort of latent death wish expressed in a lot of movies of this period specifically i think is one that's really interesting to i think it's really interesting to look at the game from that point of view and uh the citation i'm really fond of is you know in the adam curtis documentary Hypernormalization, which for anybody who doesn't want to watch a four-hour adam curtis movie i sympathize but go to youtube and watch the the like two-minute montage in that scene where he just cuts together to the song dream baby dream by suicide all the shots and movies that came out pre 9-11 about some huge like city leveling calamity happening in blockbuster movies right and then there was even a more recent i think expression of this idea in the matrix resurrections right in that brilliant sequence towards the end where everybody starts jumping out of buildings and like drone bombing uh neo and trinity this idea that you know blockbuster movies that big hollywood movies have this morbidity to them and this latent uh suicidal impulse um i think that's one of the most interesting and expressive things about this movie but it's an idea that the movie's only sort of like sometimes in touch with what do you think of it I think it's interesting when you when you cross cross that with the other I guess zeitgeisty thing about the movie, which is this is a movie and it's not a '90s thing. It's a '90s expression of it as a kind of both jab at and attempt to get inside the psychology of the super rich, right? And the idea that what the Douglas character is is he's kind of like the the invisible hand made visible. You know, he's someone who has been born into wealth he's skilled to some extent at accruing more of it there's a certain expediency and cruelty to the few choices we see him make which in narrative terms are just very functional to give potential enemies who kind of might want to take him down right mm -hmm. and you know fincher himself describing the movie as a modern gloss on a christmas carol speaks to the precise nature of the comeuppance it's the idea of stripping away material things to get to the emotional core separating the material from the emotional finding that redemption comes you know from from not really you know wanting or needing worldly things anymore i mean he's he gets broken down and stripped of his assets he ends up you know coming back in a suit that's not his own he symbolically you know pawns this watch just to be able to kind of go back 
And that's all stuff that I think has a certain catharsis or schadenfreude for audiences at any time. You know, it's like the, the screwball comedy trope of, you know, the man who, even something like Sullivan's Travels, where he gets, you know, waylaid and has to go through life as a bum, and, you know, learn, you know, learn, learn suffering. It's a Prince and the Pauper narrative. It's, it's Scrooge, you know. Um, and that idea that the death wish comes from a position of extreme privilege, and the life force, in a way, comes from a position of seeing how, quote-unquote, the other half lives, or seeing the excitement in some ways, and the fulfillment of life without those things, which is why the fact that at the end of the movie, all of his wealth is returned to him as if by <laughs> magic, yeah. is either, you know, a, a grave oversight or a satirical point. I mean, again, I don't want to leap too all over here, but it, 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 it does feel like the right time to cite, you know, both the deeply hilarious and almost kind of shamefacedly inadequate sight gag where uh, the resurrected Sean Penn, not dead, uh, approaches his brother having, um, you know, hit the X marks the spot. He's like an actor in an action film. He's hit his mark. He's fine. Yeah. And uh, Conrad presents him with a T-shirt that says, you know, I got drunk and left for dead in Mexico. I got drugged and left for dead in Mexico. And all I got is this stupid T-shirt. And the inadequacy of the emblem is something that the characters within the movie laugh at. It's funny, and Douglas is laughing, and it's very funny. But as as an audience member, you sort of go, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. this isn't really a movie about the larger paranoid forces that control us, and it's not even really a movie about how uh, this, this particular master of the universe is going to suffer on behalf of his uh, tax bracket is just fucking funny game. Yeah, it's a uh, it's know? you know, you're exiting through the gift shop, right? You know, you're getting the, yeah. the merch on the way out. It's a movie about a vacation. This is the other uh, you know, so the first time we see Sean Penn, uh, who's playing Nicholas's brother Conrad in this movie is they go to lunch at the club for his birthday and that's where Conrad says, "Hey, I got this gift. I've got to give you a coupon so you can get this this thing, this CRS consumer. I don't remember what the acronym is. Consumer Recreation Services, something yeah. like that. Um, you know, and he's like, "What is it?" And he's like, "Oh, you got to. It's an experience, man. You got to. You got to try it." Um, and so the whole thing is couched in these terms of like, you know, you know. I think in the movie, at a couple of points, they say, "What do you get for the man who has everything?" Right. And another movie that the game, I think, uh, is a real parallel to uh, is Total Recall, right? Which is another 100%. movie. 100%. Which is another movie about the idea of, you know, a character who is a bit restless because he lives in this world in Total Recall. It's a more explicitly futuristic world where you can travel to Mars and stuff. Uh, but the idea that modern life is so frictionless and convenient um, that there is this longing for actual danger. You know, for to have an actual adventure, to have a real experience, right? And so the the game and Total Recall are both sort of premised on this fantasy of a vacation where you can act out, you know, your movie dreams, right? Where you can play the character in a movie. Yeah, and then the genre is dependent on the particular movie because in Total Recall he acts out a Schwarzenegger movie. It's like the Stations of a Cross of an Arnold movie, and with Verhoeven at the controls, maybe a bit more fun is being made at. Arnold's expense than if it was a different director in mm -hmm. the same way that you know in the game some of the jokes are the kind of jokes you would expect from a Douglas movie especially the invasion of the private 
sphere, which is mm-hmm. something that Douglas has, and the suspicion of hot blondes, you know, is, is a, a real Douglas right. specialty. But, um, you know, that, that idea too of a game is very interesting to Fincher. He's an inveterate game player. And it's like an inversion of the most dangerous game, which is going to become such a crucial motif in Psycho. I mean, it's already kind of informs the world of Seven, right? With the idea of so this kind of wealthy monster character, the John Doe character, kind of using people as props. I mean, he's hunting them here not for sport, but as artistic material. But the game kind of inverts that. And it's like, you know, what would it be to be like the target of those people? Except again, he's the target with blanks. And right. I think when you're when you're talking about exiting through the gift shop, I've always thought one of the funniest bits in the movie is when he's he opts to split the bill, and you sort of yeah. see, you know, it, it's kind of almost like the idea of you know, in, not just proportionate taxation, but like, you know, if Bill Gates wanted to see a movie, he should have to pay the equivalent of what thirteen bucks is to the rest of us, right, for right, the so experience, you know, because he's presented this bill, which the movie doesn't show you. But the idea is that he's kind of signed off on his experience, and it's a kind of tacit acknowledgement, I guess, that it was worth it, right. But the uh, but the idea that you can put a price on self actualization and redemption is also kind of deeply cynical. And these are the things where, again, you wonder if Fincher is not not wrong when he says that this stuff wasn't worked out satisfactorily, uh, or if you know, in some ways, the, the the contradictions of it are kind of what's are kind of what's interesting. You know, that this isn't maybe the most cogent or coherent ending, but it's very spacious and provides room to kind of move around and, and play and, and and pull apart. I happen to feel the latter, you know. I, I, I'm not someone who thinks that the ending of the movie is dumb. I'm someone who thinks that the ending of the movie is quite rich, whether or not it, it works. And when Fincher's really cooking at the end, like it's one of the great sequences in any of his movies, when Douglas wanders into CRS's version of the studio commissary yeah, and sees every figure in his life, it's a beautifully paranoid moment because it boomerangs back on you yeah. as a film viewer. And you're like... I saw that guy. I saw that guy. It's like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. It's a it's a wonderful scene. Well, yeah, to talk about that, to follow up on that scene, we just start talking about some of the other actors and characters that pop up in this movie. Something that um, I think it, I think I think it was Fincher who said it on the commentary track was that they they wanted all the extras and all the actors in the movie to be plausible as somebody who might you know, walk across the screen and you'd never see them again, or they might develop into somebody who's a bigger player. And that invokes this whole idea that, you know, the game is constantly adjusting itself based on however Nicholas interacts with these people that he runs into. They either develop into bigger players or they end up in just bit roles. That's why you get uh, things like, you know, the, uh, the amazing James Rebhorn as the guy yeah. who kind of gives him, you know, the soft sell in the CRS offices and, you know, is carrying around the bag of Chinese food, right? Rebhorn, this amazing character actor, the, one of the Hall of Fame, like that guy's who, you know, played the kind of avuncular face of course corporate greed on enlightened um as the ceo oh he's a he's a he's a he's a first ballot white that guy actor (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm trying to think like who he would play on Succession, and I kind of feel like you can't really cast him as anybody except no. except like Sandy maybe because he's only really plausible as like somebody who's like a real heavy in his own right. You know, as good as he is as playing this guy who's like you know kind of smiley and like oh I just work here. You know, isn't this crazy? All this stuff's going on as they're walking through like the CRS offices wherever, which are very conspicuously like being constructed around them. Um, you know, it's very obvious from the jump that like this guy is not all that he seems right no and he no and he's and he's just familiar enough again that he brings the whole <laughs> he brings the whole hollywood apparatus with him even if it's not clearly him dragging it he has a residue to him you know he has a a half scene kind of subliminal quality where it's like that guy's from a movie Yes, he exists, in, and that's why again you have like one scene. It's not someone as famous as Linda Mann. I mean, here it's someone who's deeply specific. You have this one sequence with Linda Manns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the highest, one of, one of the highest batting averages in American movies. Yeah, but you know, rarely in anything, and an interesting life, and an interesting person, very memorably profiled by Nick once in The Village Voice, and mm-hmm. you know, so intrinsic to one of the most iconic American films ever made. In Days of Heaven, of which she is the voice and the consciousness, and then brilliant and Dennis Hopper's Out of the Blue, which I think you did. You just watch and see for the first time. No, it's or did I make that up? No, I didn't. I I, I tweeted about it because there is a restored uh, DCP right. event yeah. that's that's touring around. I didn't make the time to to watch it. I've seen I've seen the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the best movies ever made in yeah. Canada, from among among other things. <laughs> but I mean, you know, so when Man shows up in this one scene as a character of no real narrative importance, she's like a gatekeeper character to help find Deborah Kerr Unger. She's like lets Douglas in on the ground floor to Unger's upstairs apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, for every seven out of ten people watching the game who aren't going to recognize her, people who recognize her, are like, why is Linda Man's here? And it's. Well, again, strange. Just a very conspicuous person, not just like interesting face, but like what, no more than five feet tall, probably yeah. tops. You know, just a, a very conspicuous presence is somebody who is like I think also suggested to be like yeah, uh, Christine, the character played by Deborah Carr Unger, her like roommate or like downstairs roommate or something. It's 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 very strange. It's not like it's not something that strikes you immediately as like yeah, that's plausible. This is where she really lives. No, and the only piece of casting, since we are getting this deep core into it, that I never really liked, and not because he's a bad actor, but you have Armin Mueller-Stahl as his kind of corporate uh, pal-slash-rival-slash- who's there because he had been Oscar-nominated recently for Shine, and that's why he's there. It's prestige casting, and it's it's not even that he's bad, but and he's good in other movies. I mean, he's great in Cronenberg's Eastern Promises, for instance, but- um, he 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 feels like he's there for a different reason. It's kind of like you know the mid '90s prestige casting director puts Stuller. But even the casting of Penn is kind of amazing because it wasn't supposed to be him. It was supposed to be Jodie Foster. You know, it was going to be a sister, not a not and a I think brother. In, yeah, and think of the original draft. It was like his prep school friend or something. It wasn't even a yeah. relation. Yeah, w- wasn't even a relation. So Penn and all of his kind of bad boy black sheep you know, baggage is very well used. And oh, to remember the days, I mean, this is true of so many people, but I mean, the days when Sean Penn was just an actor, not Bob Honey, who just does stuff, right? You know, he was, he was just, a, just an actor. Well, but the, the, the Sean Penn aura, like, does so much lifting, because again, the Conrad character, 
you know, when I learned that originally in the script it was not a brother, it's like, well, that makes sense because the whole relationship's very underwritten. You know, same with yeah. the same with the character you're talking about with his, his business partner, this guy who runs this publishing house who he's like trying to lay off in the middle of going through this absurd conspiracy plot. These relationships are just they just don't have enough stitching there, you know, where they should be doing more lifting for the character and for what Nicholas is going through. They're very they're treated very perfunctorily. Not it's really not satisfying. But Penn's really good in the movie. No, pen, 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 pen's great. And again, he, uh, he, 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 the, the, these memories of times when actors could sort of just be like, you know, same with Robert Downey Jr. I mean, just interesting and, and, and strange and have an energy to them that could kind of hotwire or hijack a movie for a little while, as opposed to now where Sean Penn will never just show up in something ever again. Although I guess he did just show up in Licorice Pizza. <laughs> he did so just show up. He did just show up in Licorice Pizza where I had this experience where it was like, you know, when I heard that he was going to be in that movie, I was like, really, Sean Penn? Are we like, are we still doing Sean Penn in twenty in twenty twenty one? But but he shows up and it's like, wow, is Sean Penn my favorite actor? He's great. You know, I, I never, I never, I forgot how good he is or how good he's capable of being. But I mean, again, when you we're, we're, we're ostensibly talking about the game in the context of succession, it is true that the Connie and, uh, you know, Conrad and Nick relationship is somewhat underwritten. And so, you know, while, while by the way, for anyone who's gotten this far in the podcast, we're not <laughs> suggesting to Brendan nor I that, you know, succession is an adaptation of, of, of the game and that this is the big reveal for uh, Jesse, Jesse Armstrong and his merry band of collaborators. This is their Rosetta Stone. But... That idea of like sibling rivalry and competition and pathos and the idea of like, uh, you know, trying to mend the psychic damage done by a father. There is a little bit of that in in the game that does transfer into that dramatic universe of succession. And I guess by that calculus, you know, Nicholas is very much a Kendall and uh, Connie is kind of a, a Roman. A Roman. Kind of a kind of a Roman, I guess. Did we ever play this game? I, th- I may have just done this myself, but did we ever did we ever play this game of like trying to fantasy cast succession in different periods? Right, I think I have a version of it where in the seventies it's like Warren Beatty and Charles Grodin as uh, as Ken and Roman. Um, you know, you'd, yeah, you'd that'd, have, be, that'd be that'd be that directed by Elaine May. Yeah, well, great. you'd have you'd have like Houston as Logan. Yeah, it'd be awesome. Um, you could you could play that game forever. Yeah, I mean. You, you, I, 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 I suppose, but I think that um, you know maybe we'll, maybe we'll we'll get into it as we go along. But that some of those themes of extreme wealth wedded to depression and the idea of looking for a way out mm-hmm. is really part of what's woven into the good stuff in Succession. Yeah, and I like the show as much as you do, though I didn't start a podcast about it. But no. we can agree that in a TV show, you don't have the compression of a movie. So the game is something right. that has good and bad things, but they're compressed into a two-hour running time that allow you really to kind of. I don't think you have, I don't think you have to hedge when you're talking about. It. I mean, with Succession, we have an ongoing narrative, and you once again, even today on Twitter, to date this podcast, we've just you know endless dumb stuff about long form and comparing Euphoria to Dickens or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but, but I mean, with with Succession, the die is not totally cast in how these relationships are going to work, which is kind of frustrating. You know, I, I long for the compression of cinema, because yeah. you know, I feel a lot of it's just kind of gold bricking. But the good stuff in Succession, I think, is about some of the same stuff that the good stuff in the game is is about. Like, really, they're about the same thing. Yeah, you know, it's it's not a superficial comparison. It's a, it's a deep core relationship between these texts. 
No, it's not. But I mean, uh, to talk a little bit more about some of the other like movie connections here, because stuff just kept coming to mind when I was watching this, um, you know, and, and we are doing this podcast, uh, you know, just uh, just the two of us, just for the fellas. Uh, but we should finally talk about uh, Christine, the character played by Deborah Kara Unger in this movie. Uh, which, you know, the, the second act, I think, mostly kind of, like, hinges on her appearance and, you know, what's going on with her character. She shows up as this working-class waitress at the club that Nicholas frequents. She spills wine on him, and then right after that, he gets this note from a mysterious waiter who says, don't let her get away. And so they end up on this sort of, like, semi-meet-cute-slash-suspense sequence where they're sort of traipsing across the city and being, you know, having weird hijinks and stuff that may or may not be, you know, influenced by CRS and be part of this overall narrative that he's into. But I, and I got to say, this is, again, one of the parts of the movie where I zone out a little bit because the stuff that the movie is riffing on, I think, is just, it's not that interesting to me. But part of the reason it's not that interesting is, I think, because Fincher is not interested in Unger as like a source of romantic tension which I think is something that the that the script sort of gestures towards but doesn't do much with. No, it doesn't do much with it. I mean, you made the smart idea, and when you told me, I thought, that oh, was smart, and you have it in the, the podcast notes, which is smart, that it's like a bit of a version of North by Northwest. Yeah. But the reason it's not as good as North by Northwest is because whatever charisma Douglas has, he doesn't have the same you know desperate desire to see him escape and succeed and be okay that we get from gary grant and because again north by northwest has a certain lightness to it the game is funny in places i mean funny but i wouldn't call that lightness well yes but here's the thing about north by northwest and about the ava marie saint character um who would be the parallel for uh for christine for deborah carr unger here um is that you're right that North by Northwest has a lot of lightness to it. It's a fun caper movie. Cary Grant's a very likable, jokey presence, much more so than Michael Douglas's. On the other hand, I think the game keeps uh, Douglas in sort of a nicer or more sympathetic zone than the Cary Grant character Roger Thornhill goes into in North by Northwest because what that whole sequence with Ava Marie Saint does when she's introduced to the movie, uh, you know, they make love on this train and it's not clear exactly if she's just a stranger, if she knows something. Eventually she betrays him and, you know, he barely escapes with his life in the famous crop duster sequence. When he returns to her, that activates this really intense, frightening sexual jealousy in that character, in the Cary Grant character. And that's one of the things that Hitchcock, you know, really got about Grant, was not just how to use him in a way that was fun and daffy in all the ways that Grant was capable of being, but how scary Grant could be um, in the right circumstances. And Grant's, like, anger, his vindictiveness, um, when he realizes he's been betrayed and decides that he needs to get back at this woman somehow, right. um, that's some pretty off-putting stuff, and it's a zone that the game doesn't enter into, in part because Fincher is not interested in that. No, and what Douglas ends up playing towards the end is a righteous anger on behalf of the audience. And it's an anger fueled a bit by impatience. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, okay, show me this now. You know, like, get to the ending. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. He, and he has that great line. He says, you know, I want to go behind the curtain. I want to meet the wizard. And in my book, I talk about how, I mean, talk about a <laughs> talk about an origin myth for the kind of filmmaker Fincher is not just for his filmmaking, but let's say his relationship to supplements and commentaries and stuff, you know, that he was inspired to get into filmmaking by watching a making of The Wizard of Oz. I mean, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. G- given the extent to which The Wizard of Oz is all about 
make-believe and engineering and an ersatz sublimity that, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the movie, as conceived by none, none other than Mank himself, <laughs> one, one, one Herman Mankiewicz is the one who had the ingenious idea, right. the $30,000 idea to have all the, uh, all the farmhands and stuff be the, the dramatis personae of Oz and do the, uh, the little prologue where it's like you meet these people and then you see them in their, their Oz garb. And there is something very Wizard of Oz in that sense about the game. And that's the studio commentary scene becomes a weird reversal of the and you were there and you were there and you were there. And I think Fincher's interest in Wizard of Oz is very different than David Lynch's. I mean, I mentioned this in the book, that David Lynch really earnestly is trying to remake The Wizard of Oz every time he makes a movie. Yeah. And Lost at Heart, was Wild at Heart is the one time where he like really just put the costume on. But the rest of the time, he's remaking it in different costumes. You know? Yeah. And when Fincher does Wizard of Oz, he's interested in the, the curtain and the engineering and the fakery. Because the original Wizard of Oz is a wonderful metaphor for film going. You know, Dorothy is knocked unconscious and then projects herself into a really entertaining color adventure, at which point she has to go home. You, know, you can't you can't live there it's 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 a it's a it's a movie metaphor all the way it's been analyzed as such forever so when douglas gets angry you know he 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 wants to complain not just to the management he kind of wants to complain to the director he wants the movie to be over and that's where that that self-reflexive vibe of the of the of the climax really gets built one thing that you forget unless you re-watch it and for those people who've made it this far in the podcast without turning us off and who are like oh we're gonna re-watch the game it really pushes it in the number of times in the last 10 minutes you have someone and it's often deborah carr unger screaming like oh god no this time really now it's dangerous <laughs> And then someone being like, oh, you know, talking to megaphones and be like, this isn't supposed to happen. I mean, it's meant to be frustrating because you've yeah. set up a, a movie where this is just part of the language that these people speak, this language of, uh, you know, fake panic. But then the, in the very, very final phase where he's supposedly supposed to shoot Conrad, like you really kind of want to punch the movie at a certain point. Yeah, that's that's you where know. you that's that's like the kind of frustration that he's giving off that you get, which is just the exasperation of just like let's let's well, let's just end this. Let's just end this. And it, and and I, I I mean, you mentioned that you know there's the kids and the, there's the the community episode that parodies the ending of the game, which is very funny. But I just think in a more generalized, it becomes like something. It's not an actual scene I can cite from The Simpsons. But it ends up having a kind of Simpsons or Kids in the Hall energy where the put-on is just so aggravating. Yeah, you, you, you whatever pleasure entertainment value you're getting from it is twinned with like real genuine kind of uh, genuine kind of impatience. And then you get the payoff, whatever you make of it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I guess yeah, we're mostly at that that ending. We might as well discuss. Yeah, we're going to have to edit. We're going to have to edit in the line from Community where it's like what the cops saying like in uh in 100% of fake gun related homicides, the victim is the one with the fake gun. <laughs> the victim is the one with the fake gun. You know, I mean that, that and that that was a funny parody on 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 Community. Probably the only game parody that i can think of yeah because i don't, Cause I don't not... know if it's entirely specific to the game or if this is just like other stuff that they're riffing on but it is so close to what the ending of this movie feels like i feel like that has to be like the main thing they had in mind for that yeah no for 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 sure 
But, you know, I, I, I don't know how you were going to plan to build to this, but it occurs to me that, you know, the the birthday party that Kendall throws for himself, really... I was going to talk right about down, that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right down to the... Uh, the supposed birth canal and the childhood treehouse and whatever else. It's kind of like a self-contained version of a lot of the, uh, a lot of the kind of emotional mechanisms that are in play in the game. You know, this return to the childhood scene and, and, you know, the, the anxiety about whether you're going to become like your father or, or, or check out before you do. That's where the connection starts to feel really strong, not in terms of reference or homage, but just existing on the same kind of dramatic wavelength. Yeah, and I mean, we've, we're going to yada yada a lot of the plot details of this movie because, again, there's so much stuff in here where I just I just don't care. Where they're, like, in the car yeah. and going, like, oh, my God, they've taken all your money and stuff. It's like, I, I don't care about that. Although they do establish that he has $600 million, which is, like, just over, if you account for inflation, which is, like, just over a billion in today's money. So he's rich, basically, to put a button on that. Um, yeah, he's, 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 he's rich. Yeah, sure. but uh, but basically the whole the third act of this movie is set off by yeah Christine betraying him and the whole resurrection sequence in Mexico where he's like buried alive in the white suit, which is the great uh, Talking Heads joke where he looks like David Byrne and stop making sense, and it's like how did I get here? Here being uh, yeah. in a in a in a, uh, a underground in Mexico. And a, and, and a shout out to a really brilliant critic, Gina Teleroli, who wrote writes about that scene not with the Talking Head reference, but with uh, that idea of clothes and rebirth and costuming and just about that whole sort of morbid mausoleum set piece in, in Mexico. She wrote, she wrote about it for the Criterion website, and it's a, just a terrific little 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 blurb of writing like it's only about a thousand words but it's yeah it's, i will have great. to i'll have to make a note for myself to to link to that when we put this up but yeah and the whole yeah. and but yeah the whole like unraveling of this is yeah we've already talked about you know he uh he sees the james redhorn character on tv and realizes that he's an actor in commercials hunts him down at the zoo with his kids and you know puts a gun to him and you know makes him go to the CRS where we have the scene in the cafeteria there's the rooftop with Deborah Carr Unger and it's just this like again escalating hysteria escalating mania escalating paranoia until finally they engineer this conclusion where uh, Conrad bursts through wearing a white tux and holding champagne and Nicholas in his mania uh, shoots him before he realizes who it is um, and so they, they put him in this place where he's killed his brother. He's done something unforgivable. And this is what drives him to, in despair, just step off the roof of this skyscraper and, you know, finally reenact uh, his father's suicide. Although it turns out it's not real because he crashes through the breakaway glass onto the big X. And he's at the birthday party. And now, finally, guaranteed, it's actually over. That's that, 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 yeah. that is actually the ending of the game. But you brought up the... Um, Kendall's birthday party and when we talked about that episode on this podcast I mentioned the idea of bathos um, as something that that party played with a lot this concept of I think if the sort of shorthand definition of the camp sensibility is failed seriousness right bathos is sort of like failed catharsis or like failed sublimity Right. And there's a, and so Kendall's going for that in his birthday party. Right. And I think in the ending of the game is kind of going for that because it's playing with this stuff that is really dark. It's incredibly dark. Like that whole idea of like, I am going to like from think about it from Sean Penn's point of view, I am going to force my brother through this incredibly labyrinthine 
process that presumably costs millions of dollars uh, and get him to actually commit suicide just so he can kind of get it out of his system. Um, <laughs> you know, which is like, this is also like kind of similar to something that happens in the David Mamet movie, State in Maine. Um, it, that idea is, again, that's where the movie only works for me on the metaphorical level. It only works for me if you think of this as, well, this is really just a commentary on how movies work is they allow us to purge things that are latent, that are unexpressed. Uh, but if you think about it as like, this is, this, these are two characters. These are two like human beings with like, you know, plausible psychologies, you know, in a relationship doing this. It's insane. It, it's insane. It doesn't wash. And the, the, the whole thing just breaks for me. And that's what I and that's what I feel about. That's why I bring up the idea of bathos. It goes for this catharsis. But the whole thing for me is just completely breaks open and there's nothing there. Well, it's, you know, it, I mean, when you mentioned bathos in the con in the context of succession, I mean, the failed sublimity of of Kendall's birthday party is he's trying to stir within his guests and himself this this, I guess he's trying to stir for his guests and trying to recreate for himself this deep pit of significance he feels at this age and at this stage in his life. Yeah. Where he's trying to live up to four or five different things that just are not within him. Right? And so he looks inward and you know, if he can recreate the world for night in his image, everyone will see how tortured and brilliant and and emotional and all these things, you know, he is. And the, 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 the failure lies in this success. The fact that he stages it and that most of it remains standing by the end is not a testament to the party. It's just a testament to what a stupid idea it is because right. it becomes like a playground for other people's mockery. And the sublime... The, his, his reaching for the sublime in the form of himself and his traits and his personal trivia and, and, and his deep feelings, you know, just kind of just opens him up to all kinds of <laughs> opens him up to, to, to all kinds of mockery. And really the only reason that at the end of that episode, you know, he, he doesn't jump is because his partner's with him, but he's staring there the way that that Kendall character is often associated yeah. with staring and heights and the plunge. You know, I mean, that's that's something that underwrites his character a lot. You've mm -hmm. talked about it different ways, you know, on, 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 on this pod. Succession makes it funny, but it's also not the climax of anything. Because, again, Succession can kind of keep going and, 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 and keep going. And I think that Succession does something, I'm going to say, that the game wouldn't even consider, whether it did it cynically or not, which is Succession is sort of about, you know, wealth in the sense of you know what does what do what do people in that world view as expendable i mean in 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 succession the fact that these characters aren't going to lose anything and any, any of their money is not a happy ending it's not a restorative ending it's not redemptive it's the worst thing in the world yeah you know, the, the game feels a need in a way to restore this douglas character to some prosperity the way christmas carol does with scrooge but for the really kind of limited buy-in that we have that, like, what, he's going to be a nicer person? I mean, he won't fire his heavily accented publisher buddy. You know, what, he's going to be nicer to his servants? He's going to give his money to charity? I mean, the movie doesn't follow through on any of that because if it did, it would be just kind of so piddling, mm -hmm. you know? In, 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 this, in the game, there's no real sense of capitalist violence or exploitation or any other people suffering as a result of that. I mean, it's just more that he's an asshole. Yeah. And, and, and succession in its best moments. And I would cite as I did in the other times on the pod, the truly nightmarish ending of the first season, 
a car going into the water, which in the game is just a trope. <laughs> you know, the Douglas yeah. character, when his car crashes into the water, he's literally kind of looking around like, this can't be real. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In succession, it feels horribly real. And while Kendall escapes, a bit like a character in an action movie, the driver of the car, as we know, doesn't. And it's one of those deaths on TV that, however jerry-rigged the narrative context is around it, I just think is 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 devastatingly sad. And about how the world works in terms of expendability. Yeah. And that's something that the game never gets at. Never. It never suggests that anything, yeah, that, ne- that anything has to change for this character. It's something that simply has to be gotten out of his system, purged somehow. If we want to be, I guess, a little bit snide about it and talk about it in terms of contemporary discourse, this is a real movie about the idea of art as trauma therapy, right? About the idea yeah, that, art, is. that art is, or the movies, is what, is that, is what CRS is this elastic metaphor for, Uh they're about purging things. They're about purging things in your past, in your psychology. And then when you go back to the real world, nothing else need change. The, the experience is sufficient. Um, and it just doesn't wash. It's just, it's, 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 it's abrupt in the way that, like, I feel like the, almost like the ending of Vertigo is quite abrupt, uh, but without any of the, like, the resonance that comes after that, without any of, like, the horrible after aftertaste of that ending no and no and, the, and really when you think about it the very because again vertigo is also marked by falling you know and a fear of heights which is yeah beyond obvious it's literally called vertigo but i mean the whole the ending of the game has that extra kind of womp womp beat where you know he's going to get another chance with her now not as an actress but as a a person whereas you know vertigo and its associated works like the three de palma movies that are remakes of vertigo in a way mm-hmm. You know, are all about you. You lose somebody, you lose them. Yeah. You know, a second chance is perverse, but you know, you could argue that in the game he gets a second chance to make a first impression because she's not a real person. But even so, it's an ending that that last beat that you know, out of all of this, he might also get a girlfriend, and you're kind of like, you know, unless this is in the biggest scare quotes ever, it's pretty fizzly again it's a again it's a weird failure it's one of one of several failures of nerve on the movie's part that it implies that it implies that he has a great relationship with his ex-wife and that like she doesn't have any like grudges against him or anything like that and she's just sort of waiting for him to come to her and ask her for help which is is very touching in a sense and i get that and that's one that's what that's why i say like in fits and starts this movie is very you know like affecting and poignant to me when there are these things like that suggest that like there are all these sort of like you know, people like waiting to offer him help and to, you know, like give and for him to take their hand. Um, and he just has to, you know, wake up out of himself to do that, to come back alive again. Uh, but the implication that like, yeah, it just like fell apart and he didn't do anything unforgivably awful to her. You know, he's a rich prick, but not to anybody who would like resent him for it or that it would really matter. He hasn't burned any bridges anybody cares about. It's just, it's not plausible. And yeah, it's a failure of nerve. Well, and, and, and that's why, you know, I think while the, the, as shot by Harris Savides, it's a beautifully dark vision, and as packaged together in the trailers with the hints of Seven and the hints of Parallax view you get through the psychological processing stuff, you know, well, the game has a certain edge to it and has a certain level of darkness, I mean, even the creepy clown stuff, which is proto-Saw or, or, yeah. or whatever with the marionette. 
it's really not all that dark a, a film. I mean, I take I take Fincher at his word when he says he was trying to make a kind of millennial Christmas Carol, which is to say, uh, a film about a possibility of of redemption. And when that redemption is being bestowed upon a, a one percenter front runner, you know, who's who's come up and is 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 mostly just you know embarrassment. And, and and a good time in retrospect. <laughs> you don't you don't exactly get the gravitas you get when when Fincher's working with pulpy material, but he it's been worked out. You know, not I don't mean something so cliched as like happy endings are bad and open endings are good, but he's very very capable of making genre material that even as it comments on itself, you know, it 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 it, it doesn't give you an escape hatch. Yeah. Uh, and this movie, I think, in the end, it's just a big, honking escape hatch. Not out of interest, and not out, not escape hatch, or even away from meaning, but but maybe an escape hatch in the end, away from seriousness. And that's why that T-shirt is like I, I write about it in the book, is it's an emblem for the movie. It's like, yep, that's definitely what happened. And the only thing you can kind of do is wear and display and admit it kind of ironically. And also, the game, maybe this is why it's kind of a good movie, because I think this is often true of good movies. When you describe it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> the experience of watching it redeems how implausible it sounds in a yeah. in a sentence, you know? Because it's really all about suspension of disbelief. It's what keeps me interested in it is not just how well it suspends disbelief but how much it's about it yeah not to imply by the way you mentioned a christmas carol not to imply that the movie is like not as dark as it could be because he's going for a christmas carol i can't speak for all adaptations of that book but you ever seen the george c scott adaptation of christmas yeah. carol T terrifying it, 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 it is terrifying and, and christmas carol is such a great all-purpose uh i mean scrooged as a christmas as a, as a late 80s <laughs> sure yes. Gecko. yeah 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 i mean you know murray's playing much Michael very Dunn. close to that milieu yeah 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 very very close to that milieu very close to a kind of surrealist wall street you know, if Gordon Gecko was a was a TV producer, I'm 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 very fond of the observation, by the way, Roger Ebert made about Michael Caine in the in the Christmas Carol Muppet Christmas yeah, Carol. Yeah, yeah. It's like Michael Caine is he says something to the effect of Michael Caine is one of the finest technical actors alive. And if you don't believe that, you watch this movie and f catch yourself forgetting that he's emoting to a piece of felt most of the time. Oh, there's a great, yeah. there's a great thought exercise. The game, but Mike, it's Michael Douglas and Muppets. Michael Douglas and Muppets. No, but I mean, Kane in the Christmas Carol, where he's really talking to the ghosts about his failures oh, and yeah. his regrets, and you're like, these are, these are, these are being flailed wildly by skilled puppeteers this is felt oh it's it's one of his and, best and it's Kane, one of his best performances yeah oh he's 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 amazing and you know you you know that when you're talking about michael kane and the, the christmas carol a podcast has reached a very special <laughs> special a, spe, a special place well look yeah we're, we're we're off we're off topic a bit now and um i think we've dunked enough on the ending of the game uh so i yeah so i to sort of pivot away from that pivot back a little bit more into succession territory and also take an entirely different uh, tangent. I wondered if we might take a few minutes at the end of this uh, podcast uh, to talk about another 
recent movie from one of the key creative influences on Succession, um, yeah. which I'm referring to Adam McKay's film Don't Look Up, um, which is this. We're, 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 we're recording this on the eve of the Oscar nominations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's let's both make it. Let's make a guess. Are those actually tomorrow? Tomorrow morning. Oh I my think god! Don't look up. Gets. <laughs> I think don't look up. Gets seven Oscar nominations. Oh my god! I thought about this enough to, to give me a number. Can I lowball this? I'll, I'll say. I'll say. I'll say. Lowball it. I'll say. I'll say two. I'll say. I'll say. Be the price. Be the price is right, guy. One dollar. One dollar. I bid one dollar on Don't Look Up's Oscar chances. No, uh, but uh, but we, we we've talked about this film a little bit. But I'm interested yeah. to talk about it a little bit now because we talked about it when it was a little bit uh, closer to the center of the discourse than it is now, shall we say? Um, and uh, maybe and it will and it will and it's going to return. It's it's going to return when when it uh, dominates the Oscars. Um, but uh, so Don't Look Up. I'm sure everybody who's listening to this is familiar with it. But the the premise is is it's the satirical film. It takes the premise that there's this giant comet that's going to obliterate all life on Earth in six months from the time that it's discovered, and it follows these scientists who are played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence as they try to stop it, and they're basically they're confronted by the reality that the modern governments and institutions are too corrupted and self-interested to work together to avert this threat. And so, Adam, I, I think you and I are in agreement that Adam McKay is like one of the key filmmakers of this era of Hollywood. Um, yeah, except except three or four years ago, neither of us would have said it with an audible cringe in our voice. Well, yeah, it's not. Well, I, I don't mean it as a diss or even a compliment. It's just like an observation. I think it's just. No, it's, I think it's just true that like that style of film comedy is so influential and largely celebrated by audiences and critics. And and then that career shift in the last ten years since the Great Recession, where he takes this explicitly political turn and takes that structured improvisational sketch comedy approach of his earlier comedy is and refashions it into kind of agitprop style docudramas where he's trying to educate the audience about a particular issue I, I, it's just very much of the moment you know in a lot of ways yeah and and as recently as last year where i mean the only difference is that don't look up didn't exist but he was talking about you know as recently as last year he could plausibly i'm not going to say fully successfully but you know, he could plausibly be positioned by no less a, by no less a publication of political heft than Jacobin, you mm-hmm. know, as 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 America's true last angry, you know, last last angry, you know, com, you know, so, socialist communist kind of a filmmaker, and he leaned into it. Yeah. In the piece, you know, he leaned into the Bernie bro anger and he didn't resent the remark he he resembled the remark which doesn't mean that his work necessarily resembles great principled leftist filmmaking of any kind fictional narrative documentary yeah you know experimental but i think what what i mean is that it's 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 casting off the casting off the disguise right yeah that that i that that mckay's political values were there and in the work when he's head writing snl and 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 you know, doing his attempt at a Michael Moore by by doing the the Johnny Depp funnier die, Trump sketch. Oh my God! Or yeah. Bef- or before that, the You're Welcome America is a kind of, you know, fuck off to 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 Bush and all the veiled Bushisms of the Will Ferrell movies. And it's you know when he threw off the disguise with the big short, I confess that. You know, I don't. I don't reflexively dislike that movie. I like certain things about it, and I think yeah. that in a way, it's a logical step for him. 
I just don't like where the logical steps have taken him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, McKay, we're sort of talking around the fact that he's taken a lot of flack for Don't Look Up and for Vice, and uh, he took a lot of flack on Twitter, you know, just generally speaking, and then he kind of made things worse this, you know, around the release of Don't Look Up by appearing to respond passive-aggressively to criticism. But, I mean, I think that that kind of, like, overtly political and even informational entertainment from, you know, a successful Hollywood filmmaker is an easy target. And I want to, and I, I do want to say that I'm sympathetic to what I think of as his project, you know, as this guy who's a bit further left than your average socially progressive show business type. He was a Bernie guy. He signed up for the Democratic Socialists after 2016. He's doing interviews with Jacobin. And, and I think there's that obvious urgency he feels to take his position in Hollywood and use his platform to influence people however he can. But I think that, like, looking at Don't Look Up in particular, this style of filmmaking, which we've talked about as it relates to succession on this podcast before, where you're taking a kind of loose, sometimes bordering on shapeless approach to scenes because you want the actors to have freedom to find the best joke. But then your actors are largely not comedians by trade. And the goal is more propagandizing. And I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way, but it's more propagandizing than it is story and character what is left for the scenes to kind of ride on except for that sense of urgency which when it's shapeless just becomes kind of strident and it's yeah which is why when there was nothing at stake in his movies it's all fun and games yeah not just i mean anchorman's not just funny because there are funny people in it it's funny because the lack of any stakes the fact that no two shots have to match yeah that the physical and and the physical and spatial and you know fucking uh, you know metaphysical logic of this movie's universe does not have to hold for any thirty second period. It can be an insane film. I mean, I have, I have an editor who described it as a surrealist movie, which is, right. is true about right. Anchorman more than more than I think any of McKay's other movies. You know, um, when there's no stakes, that that thing that you're describing is is exciting. Mm-hmm. When when there's stakes, you know, it's intention with however sophisticated or simplistic the political sloganeering or ideas are. And that's where you get something like Vice, which has a truly, in a way, adventurous, experimental, shape-shifting, tonal chameleon spirit. But the ideas and, and sentiments it's in service of just feel very paltry. And you end up kind of, at least I did, kind of end up hating it for all the things I typically like McKay for, which is a certain what the fuck might as well just say, do, show something. Yeah, you know, I've said this before, you know, <laughs> the, the big short, there's a, there's a moment in the big short where they, the characters decide they're going to go to the financial convention in Las Vegas and inexplicably on the soundtrack, you hear the organ riff from Fan of the Opera. Right. I'm going to be laughing about this for decades and I can't explain why, but I could argue in a unified theory of Adam McKay, that only he makes a non sequitur like that. And in the same way that he has this new editing style, working with no less than Terrence Malick's uh, uh, sometime editor, Hank Corwin, who I believe won an Academy Award for Cutting the Big Short, was nom- nominated for an Academy Award mm. for Cutting the Big Short. Uh, this avant- The avant-gardist in him, where he will include montages of still images totally unrelated to the the narrative of the film because he's going actually for the sublime 
Yeah. He's going for the ridiculous sublime. Yeah. But he does this in the big short. He does it in Vice. And he does it in a really concentrated, extended way in Don't Look Up, where in between what you are very accurately describing as these shapeless, slovenly, improv-focused scenes, which when they're with not skilled comedians, but, you know, like Leonardo DiCaprio are kind of in some ways painful to watch. Mm -hmm. But then these are sometimes intercut with, like, you know, planet Earth... (laughs) Discovery Channel, Nature Doc kind of still lives. Yeah. Or Google Earth view. The Voyage of Time. The Voyage of Time, or the or in this movie, very pertinently, the 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 street scenes at the end of Failsafe. And I guess oh, one yeah. of the reasons that, I guess one of the reasons that I can't totally hate Adam McKay and I can't totally hate Don't Look Up, because I really love Failsafe. And the part of uh, Adam McKay that loves Failsafe is the part of me that's like all right, I can I can kind of get with this uh, irretrievable apocalyptic uh, sadness that he's that he's going for. I just think the satire here is what if Adam McKay wanted to be Sidney Lumet? Like that's a satirical joke, but that's not the one he's telling. That's the one that he is. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's a big a big thing for me was I just couldn't get what the movie was kind of riffing on. You know, like if the whole thing had been like failsafe parody, I would be like, okay, that's that's a solid idea for a movie. I mean, that, I mean that basically is Doctor Strangelove, right? Um, yeah. But you know, it's it's it seems like there's something contained in the premise that's like, what if you did a disaster movie, like played it totally straight? Because the movie is played pretty straight right up until that first scene where you get to the Oval Office and it's Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill, um, and you know, and, and the thing that punctures it is just that every time they say we only have six months to act, they're just met with kind of blank stares and just like you know who are you again what's in this for me that kind of thing um like that's like that's kind of a witty idea but the movie keeps sort of abandoning that or talking around it or trying to do other stuff because it doesn't quite have a central idea um and i'm happy to blame plenty of this on his uh like first time feature screenwriter david sirota who, who wrote this movie yeah and who i think is for better or worse you know going to be forever associated with it that when when you know i think it was probably just a comment made in passing that you know was then kind of seized on and developed into whatever this thing is you know i don't know how you feel about this and i don't want to introduce too abstract an idea this late either in the chat or in the actual evening where i live my life in a house filled with small children who are going to be up soon but I would argue that a lot of the annoyance around this movie, and I'm not calling it undeserved, because again, I'm not a, uh, I'm, I'm not someone who's like, you know, this movie's been done dirty. I don't hate it. I don't think it's very good. Yeah. I think the fact that it's a Netflix production in this exact moment of film cultural discourse online, I think it's a big part of how irritated people are by it. Because I think it, it's also a symbol of something totally apart from, from the climate change, uh, you know, discourse or the satire discourse or the niceties of being online between filmmakers and critics. It represents a different kind of apocalyptic future, which is like the easily made everyone on board, all-star Netflix production with, you know, production values and budget and expense that just isn't being seen by actual people in a movie theater. And which feels like a, an extension of the kind of death we're living up, of a kind of cinema that I miss. I'm not saying you couldn't make this movie for a theater, but the fact that everyone's kind of at home and expected to watch it because it's just kind of sitting there, 
is is there's something about it that I think really amped up the contempt that people had. Well, and there's a great it because uh, it's just there. Like you, li- we literally have. Don't look up at home. You know. <laughs> well, there's a connection back to David Fincher because this is kind of like what happened when Mank came out, right? Because the it is. everybody's everybody's aware, and you know, it's correctly it's been correctly observed many times that movies that you know come out on streaming and are you know like on netflix and 300 million homes overnight that it's almost like a contest that's like not like how long is this going to stick around but how quickly can we get rid of this thing how quickly can we banish this thing from the discourse you know like remember when the cloverfield paradox came out after the super bowl and it was literally forgotten before most of us had finished watching it um you know that's kind of what like these releases of these like big auteur objects like mank or don't look up kind of feel like it's just like i don't really have any uh there's not a lot of goodwill in my in my home at this moment for this movie uh and uh we're we're just gonna try to banish it to the netherworld as quick as we can well it's it's like when the u2 album showed up on everyone's phone you know yeah a little bit yeah and and the 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 trade-off which is i can be part of this moment and everyone will talk about something at the same time which on some level is you know, utopian in a pandemic context, nice and convenient, mm-hmm. um, I think clings to this movie in a way that is also not totally divorced from its subject matter and its style. Because one of the things about it is for a movie that supposedly is so urgent that, you know, all life on Earth should stop and watch it and praise it and not criticize it. It's so slapdash and kind of in a very McKayish way badly made, which again is much more charming than something like the other guys. Like I find the total slovenliness of the other guys so endearing yeah. because, you know, fuck expensive cop movies or 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 screw Hollywood movies with any causal or narrative logic whatsoever. I mean, who fucking cares? I just want to laugh at something. Yeah. And so in the case of the other guys, the fact that it's really terribly made, like terribly made, yeah, it doesn't matter. But in the case of Don't Look Up, there's something about its slovenliness that instead of being loose or relaxing or, or liberating, it is annoying. You know, it's it's annoying that he hasn't become a better actual filmmaker. Like, you know, there's got to be some kind of curve. To it. And that's why that's why the things that are supposedly virtuosic and big short and in Vice are, 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 are so annoying because... They're, they're, they're skillful, but I don't think he's actually become better at the things that you're pointing out, at the weird slovenliness and shapelessness of scenes. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that the one really terribly directed episode of Succession I can think of is, is, is McKay's. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny to think about the, um, the way that some of this stuff about trying to adapt a message to this context and just sort of like failing at it uh is also just like embedded in the text of the movie like this is the one part of the movie that i think kind of anticipates the criticism it's a movie that has a ton of like discourse blind spots and again there's a lot of easy shots that you can take and have been taken many times at this movie um but all the stuff about like leo going on the news and like trying to you know get people to listen to him and it doesn't work because it's the fucking (laughs) cable news and it's not a vehicle for like serious discussion or for like getting through to people um you know that's I, I, I a lot of this stuff like doesn't work as like an analogy for like what this actual premise would be like in reality 
like you know this it's like they don't cover climate change on cable news like it doesn't happen it's a ratings killer like that's just known so the fact that this movie tries to make it like a recurring bit is just again it just strains credulity it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't reinforce the satirical premise um but the stuff where leo is just like despairing at his ability to get anything said it's like yeah that's probably how he feels right that's how mckay feels right yeah, probably how he feels. I mean, again, there's a. I think there's even a, a, a disconnect between how stifled and frustrated he must be, and also the quality of what it is he actually has to say. You know, I don't know if you did. You happen to read another really good film critic? Did you read A.S. Hammer's little two blurbs on Succession? Because on, on Don't Look Up, because they're vicious. Oh, what did he say? You what know? did he say about it? I'm sure I read this, but I mean, something to the effect of, you know, when uh. When uh, you know a guy who you know when when more of this guy's factory uh, factory buddies die because of unsafe conditions, you know you know uh, connected to, to 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 the kinds of austerity measures that that big environmentally rapist corporations you know uh, disseminate down or, or 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 trickle down to the places that actually mine the minerals and whatever you know when when their buddies die on the job, at least they can know Adam McKay was on their side. And, you know, and, and got it right that he was there for them, which is a totally unfair thing to say about a movie, but not an unfair thing to say about McCain's self-righteousness and parading his movie as if seeing and watching it is a form of civic duty that's going to fucking do anything. I mean, someone pointed out that the movie doesn't even end with, you know, like the boilerplate links to various climate change uh, charities or informational yeah. sites or whatever. I mean... Because when you do that, then you're Al Gore and you're you're making an inconvenient truth. But you actually argue that an inconvenient truth, bad as it is as a movie, uh, you know, led to tangible, <laughs> tangible stuff. Whereas I guess with with Don't Look Up, I mean, what you're supposed to feel good about yourself for watching it on Netflix and and for not being part of the stupid people that that the movie sort of says are 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 are, are ignoring Chicken Little. I mean, this has been written about so much that it's almost boring to talk about, because this is where the the war over this movie kind of, kind of comes from. But if McKay feels frustrated and stifled, there's also the question of what is he actually saying? And maybe I like Anchorman because it's not saying anything. Yeah. The other guy isn't saying anything either. It's funny, and that's profound in and of itself. Yeah. This movie's not funny, not really. Yeah. I wanted it to be. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, I mean, again, there's a lot of, like, self-defeating discourse to have about this, and, you know, I, we've talked a little bit, just between the two of us, just about how the satirical premise just, like, doesn't wash for me, it doesn't, like, map onto the real-world parallels very well, um, but I think the, the last word that I would, that I would say about it, and this is a little bit glib, but I'll allow myself this, that McKay said, uh, in an interview that his dream was that Joe Manchin would watch this movie and be moved uh, to to take action. And I would just suggest that making movies for an audience of Joe Manchin is a flawed artistic principle. Yeah, uh, 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 very flawed. In fact, he should, Joe Manchin probably shouldn't be allowed to watch movies. No, he shouldn't. <laughs> from, from, from whatever cell he should be, he, he should, he should, he should be occupying. You know, I will say, cause again, you know, people maybe have seen Don't Look Up. One idea in it that strikes me as an idea that I would almost watch a whole movie about. I love the idea that the Cate Blanchett character, this TV anchor 
person who, when the camera's on, is just resolutely refusing to sell anything mm-hmm. that either Jennifer Lawrence or DiCaprio say. And it's funny that even by the time she and DiCaprio's character have, like, had an affair and they're sleeping together and it's breaking up Leo's marriage, she still will not sell anything he's saying on the air. But it's not a byproduct of thickness or stupidity. I thought that Blanchett's performance was really quite hilarious, which is that behind closed doors, this is this like sophisticated, worldly, <laughs> thoughtful person whose range of experiences and whose like cultural frame of reference is so beyond this kind of idiot job. And she just knows that none of that matters. Yeah. So she saves it for her private life. <laughs> she saves it for her kind of bedroom life and then when she goes on air it's like you know just completely not part of her anymore it's like locked up in some memory palace it's not who she acts like on tv anymore and that idea of it's not even like i don't think italicized as like a theme but just the offhanded comedy of a really smart person for the sake of their job stowing that shit is funny yes you know and it exists in a it exists in a realm of comic ideas that I I, I think make the, the, could, could make this a good movie if the whole movie had the rigor and discipline of that performance and that idea you, you might be somewhere you know but it it, it doesn't well if uh, Adam McKay is listening to this podcast as we know all uh, executive producers all. of Succession do. Um, if you're looking for another, uh, Bernie bro type shit poster to write your next screenplay, give us a call. Well, and if Adam, if if Adam McKay is listening, you know, we miss you because it was, those were beautiful times, you know, those, 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 those feral as Bush authority figure movies are, and I find that this is a conversation I'm having a lot now because when a filmmaker becomes disappointing, you find yourself going back to the old stuff and being like, you know, was I wrong? And uh, if Step Brothers is wrong, I'm sorry. I don't care how popular it is and how much of a cliche it is among a certain generation of, you know, white male critics to like it. I mean, if that movie's wrong, I don't want to be right. And it's a form of direction and staging and comic conceptualizing that's really valuable because god friggin knows i was talking to someone else about this it was a a writer at the ringer alan siegel we were dming about this uh like what's the last hollywood comedy that made you laugh a lot (laughs) oh uh barb and star go to vista del mar that was good that was his that was his candidate (laughs) too and thank 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 god it exists yeah 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 and i don't even like it as much as you do but man is it slim pickings yeah in the last i am uh i am starting a gofundme to hire crs to do the plot of sullivan's travels to adam mckay i'm telling you i mean that's kind of where our rich weave of uh our, our rich weave of references is leading to a version of the game where adam mckay is uh is humbled and just gives us the dirty mike and the boys feature that we've all been <laughs> that, that 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 we've all been craving because years from now on my deathbed, I'll have forgotten anything else good. But I will remember McKay saying, we are, we did have sex in your car. We are going to have sex in your car. It will happen again. <laughs> and I don't care. I don't care what, what kind of, how that degrades my critical currency on this unpaid podcast appearance I'm making. It's the funniest thing I've like ever heard. Of <laughs> so, uh, you know, hope, 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 hope springs eternal. Adam, if you're listening. 
just Dirty Mike and the boys back. Don't, we miss them. Don't lose the humor. Uh, at, don't lose. Don't, don't lose the humor. Uh, Adam, uh, it's it's always so fun to talk to you. Uh, yeah. Do you have anything coming up besides obviously this very big and distinguished book that you've written uh, that you'd like to plug on our on our podcast when this is released uh, in six months or whatever? No, you know I hope that uh, talking to the people of the future who will be listening to her, I hope everything's better. I hope everyone's in a good mood and we're all outside and seeing our. Our friends, maybe I can plug uh, for those listeners in the Toronto area. We can all see each other in uh, in, in person. But you know what? I'll always plug. Uh, I'll plug a a magazine with the good taste to often uh, have Brendan as a as a contributor and a lot of other really really good writers, including Madeline Wall, who's been a guest on your podcast, and other good Torontonians. Which is Cinemascope. You know, I consider Cinemascope my home base i think for purposes of online visibility the ringer and all that it entails is obviously where a lot of people experience you know my writing but i mean cinemascopes the the great canadian film magazine that uh, you you didn't know that you wanted and uh, brendan has a really good piece in print which is how you know it's good because they didn't put it online uh, back with the first season of succession where i will i will say for the record brendan was right about the show and he was right about there was a certain skepticism about commissioning that piece which would have never happened a year later once you know succession is now the the gold standard of our semi-grown-up popular culture right so I would so I would plug Cinemascope as a home base for myself as a venue for occasionally you know some of your favorite uh, Roycast voices are occasionally in it, and a, a year long subscription is only twenty dollars, and it's a great 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 film magazine that I'm always proud to be part of. Cosign, cosign all that, especially the stuff about me being right. Always love to hear that. Yeah, always right. Always. Yeah. All right, man. That's uh yeah, been good chatting. Uh and uh thanks yeah. thanks to everybody for listening. Um thanks to producer Dan Black and uh yeah, hopefully we'll be back with another one of these soon. Uh take care everybody. Bye bye. I lay my head on the railroad tracks and wait for the double